Welcome back to Paradigm Run. I'm your host, Mark Barrios. This life is wild. It's beautiful. It's deep. It's rich. But it's also quite mysterious. There's a hidden beauty that lives among us. We somehow get trapped and entangled into the way society tells us to live, into the dogma, the regimen, the waking up, moving quickly to get to work, coming home, doing chores, cooking, showering, going to sleep and repeating. But sometimes we need to step outside of that, have that reflection time, that contemplative time to move slow, to be gentle, to be patient, just to witness and to observe. But part of this presence to life is the ability to reconnect with our inner world. Our inner world is a mysterious statement in itself. So let's talk about that for a moment. The inner world contains archetypes. And archetypes are these constellations of energy that live within us. But once again, this is depth psychology. So these archetypes, think about the stars in the sky and imagine them coming together to form a circular shape. It's not creating one big star. They're all still individual, still unique, but they've kind of merged into this ball, this group. And all of that energy bounces off of each other. And this is what an archetype is within us. It's a constellation of energy that is present within us. There's hundreds, there's thousands, perhaps even limitless amounts of archetypes. And these archetypes have been told through stories, through mythologies, through spiritualities. Buddha, Jesus, Krishna, Arjuna, Poseidon, Artemis, Hecate, Demeter, Persephone, Thor, the Hulk. All these stories live on to help us to understand the inner world. I'm not gonna dive deep into this story, but perhaps one of the greatest stories and the greatest mythologies of our time is the Grail myth. And I'm using this as an example right now that within the Grail myth, there's the Fisher King, and the Fisher King is wounded in this story. But among this story too are mothers. There's several different knights. And then one of the main characters is Parsifal. And so Parsifal, he meets this woman named Blanche Fleur, which in French means white flower. So I'm not gonna tell the whole story, but the reason I bring this up is because some of these greatest stories, the greatest mythologies that live out there are meant for us to understand and to reconnect with our inner world. So the story of the Grail myth with all these figures I just mentioned, what's beautiful is that you have to look at the story with symbolic eyes. These are not individual unique entities or persons within the story. This entire story can be looked at as talking about one individual's entire inner world. So the king, the queen, Parsifal, the various knights, Blanche Floor, all of these are archetypes that live within one person. <laughs> it's wild stuff, it's deep. 
So these archetypes are these, once again, constellations of energy within us. And here's the beauty about the inner world is that we see the inner world every night through our dreams. We see what's going on in the backdrop of our actions and behaviors and movement in day-to-day -day life. And so when we see a certain archetype within our life, it became activated and that energy constellated for a reason. So you've heard me mention numerous psychological concepts now, such as the shadow, the anima, the animus. And these are some of the more common archetypes that appear frequently within our dreams. So let's talk about the archetype of the shadow for a moment. <laughs> this is one's dark side. I wouldn't say it's strictly evil because it's not, although it can harness evil traits or qualities. But this dark side is the side of us that lives within each of us. It's its own dark form of archetypal energy. But since we were toddlers, think about all the times we have been told no. You shouldn't kick, you shouldn't hit, you shouldn't scream, you shouldn't yell. Through elementary school, through middle school, through high school, into adulthood. Oh, you shouldn't have sex before you're married. You shouldn't fight. There comes a point in life where we must face that dark side. All those suppressed elements, all those elements of repression that I just mentioned. There is a time and a place for some of these dark traits. And think about some of those dark qualities. Anger, aggression, violence, rage, wild, untamed sexual tendencies. Now, it's not that we integrate them as they are, but we work with them. We bring them back forward into evolved form. So when working with the archetype of the shadow, there's really two main things to look at. And some of you may have heard of this in the terms of what people call shadow work. And we can do this through self-inquiry, introspection, reflection on our lives. But the shadow, it appears within our dreams frequently. It is one of the most commonly appearing archetypes. Here's the beauty is that it's signature to each person though. There's no universal standard of this archetypal energy. It appears signature to the dreamer for a certain reason, for a certain change within life. So those two things I'm working with the shadow, the first is kind of, we need to be weary of shadow traits, such as if we're being too manipulative in life. Or maybe we're being too aggressive with our friends or co-workers or subordinates, things of that sort. But the second is dark traits or qualities we need to reintegrate or integrate into our life. I say reintegrate because it's always been there. This energy doesn't just dissipate. And there's numerous mythologies and stories that elaborate on this. But before I go into those... Let's look at those traits that we need to reintegrate sometime. Say you need to be bold in life. Maybe you need to stand up for yourself in a relationship or at work. Or maybe you need to stand up for one of your friends or family members for their own health or their safety, or just in the defense. And so sometimes, think about confrontation. We get that feeling of fight or flight. And it takes courage to stand up in those moments. But it also can take that dark energy. The ability to face that confrontation head on 
amidst all the fear and just to overcome the fear and push through. Think about if somebody's breaking in your house at two o'clock in the morning. Do you want all peace, love, and happiness? Or do you want the ability to release that aggression, that rage, that violence and defense for yourself and your family? <laughs> we can dial it back a little bit though. Maybe we've been influenced by religious dogma our entire life we somewhat hold our sexual desires back. Now, I'm not saying to integrate these in a forceful way, but I'm saying that maybe it's okay to release some of the things that we thought were bad or taboo. The beauty in working with the shadow is that the shadow wants us to answer these questions ourselves, not to live solely by what society or parents or teachers or friends have told us. The answers to what is truly right, what is truly wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is moral, what is immoral, it lives within each of us and it's signature to each of us. These are not universal standards. There is a time to be violent in life. There is a time to be sexual. There is a time to be aggressive. With the beauty of being human, is that we work with these dark traits and we bring them back into our life in evolved form. With a way to work with it, not just to suppress the energy or to repress it, but to work with it. <laughs> so there's a few common stories out there, mythologies, ancient stories, but also common day ones. Think of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That story is all about the shadow. <laughs> so Dr. Jekyll, that was the man who identified with his profession. He walked around his day-to-day -day life, that mask he wore in front of people, upholding a nice demeanor, a good standard within life and society. But every night, this other energy within him, Mr. Hyde, would want to come out. That's because Dr. Jekyll suppressed this energy. He didn't work with it. So once again, that dark energy just doesn't dissipate. It has to live in some form. When Mr. Hyde would overtake Dr. Jekyll because Dr. Jekyll wasn't willing to integrate these dark aspects of his own personality. Think about the Hulk. The Hulk in his human form was just a normal human walking around. But all of a sudden he would be overtaken by anger and aggression and he would turn into this big angry green beast. This story is about working with anger, for example. It's about working with aggression and power and rage. So in the story of Hulk, he started to recognize this dark energy in him, but he's like, I just have to lock this monster up. I can't let him out. Because what was the Hulk doing? He was walking around punching the bad guys, but he's also punching the good guys. He couldn't harness it. He couldn't control it. So he locked that energy up. He suppressed it. But what happened? is that it ate him up. It tore him apart inside and he couldn't live like that. And so as the mythology of Hulk has evolved throughout our years and our time, what began to happen is that Hulk started to recognize that he was angry, that this anger lived within him. And I think in even one of the modern movies, when he learned how to start controlling it, somebody asked him, how did you learn to control it? And he goes, I just realized I was always angry. But there's so much more depth to that statement than meets the eye. 
That statement means that he became conscious of this dark energy within him, and he chose to work with it rather than to suppress it or repress it. And the moment he chose to work with it was the moment that he could now turn the monster on or turn the monster off. Think about that. Once again, there's times to be aggressive. If you're walking through a dark alley late at night, you have your significant other by your side, and then all of a sudden a threat presents itself. Maybe it's a large angry dog. Maybe it's a dark shadowy looking character who has intentions to rob you. We need that dark energy in those moments. Think about Peter Pan. <laughs> what was one of the things he was always doing within his story, within his myth? He was chasing his shadow. He was always trying to get a hand on it, but he could never catch it. Nonetheless, he kept trying and trying to catch the shadow. And these stories, once again, they talk about our inner world. It is not an easy task to understand that shadow, that archetype of the shadow that lives within us, but we can catch it. We can work with it. We can learn to harness and bring these dark energies into life in evolved form. And if we don't do that, remember this dark energy doesn't dissipate. But if we choose not to work with it, what happens is that dark energy susceptible to overcome us. Think about when you hear those crazy cases of somebody stabbing somebody 37 times. Or a man who always seemed so gentle and docile and calm. For the first time, he punched his wife or his kid. That is when that dark energy overcomes us. But before that can ever happen, we can work with this. We can become conscious of it to bring it forward into evolved form so that those moments do not happen in life. So I think you're starting to see some elements of the shadow. So just a quick recap. In working with the shadow, there's those traits and qualities to be weary of, but then there's those traits and qualities to integrate back into our life to bring them forward in a healthy, evolved manner. And within that lies an inner goal that we never knew about. And that is truly a vitality with life. It's the ability to take on life, to endure life like we never have before. It is the shadow archetype that holds that energy. But we have to become conscious of it. We have to work with it. So I hope that provides a little synopsis of some of these deeper psychological elements I'm bringing forth in the story of Vern. Here's episode nine, all in. I hope you enjoy. A week of being fearful of the night and the nightmare-induced sleep Vern encountered regularly was quite overwhelming. Vern felt to be completely engulfed in darkness. But Vern finally called Mia and bought her a plane ticket to Florida. Vern had the truck packed and the boat loaded waiting her arrival. The two took off to the river immediately. They drank whiskey by the fire in the evening, had sex in Vern's tent for hours into the night, and sipped hot coffee in the morning overlooking the gently flowing river. Although he could still feel the presence of darkness in him, Vern spoke of his darkness to Mia 
who responded with nothing but care and love for Vern. She was the sweetest of women. Vern and Mia returned to his house after a few days, but he could feel the anxiety building up again around Mia and in every public setting. Vern entered the grocery store one evening, and he immediately became irritated, bothered, moody. He felt he needed to flee as soon as possible, and these, the undeniable symptoms of an anima possession, although this still evaded Vern. Mia was patient with him, however, and she was wonderful with distractions of card games, television shows, and fires out back at Vern's house. It came time for her to leave and return to her master's degree program in Vermont, and Vern was secretly ready for this. He wanted to get back to fully understanding the darkness he felt within him. They parted ways with plans to reunite very soon. Vern's time with Mia was lovely despite it all, and Vern, he began to fall into a near inexplicable denial that the source of the anxiety and neurosis could be caused by going against his initial intuition to leave her. As the weeks continued and Vern journaled his events, the nightmares dialed back to dreams and the darkness began to slowly fade back into what seemed to be steady, yet slight, physiological symptoms and public anxiety. Vern was tolerating what was going on while still seeking answers and meeting with Jessamine once every other week. Vern knew he was in no condition to return to work, so he emailed his boss and Vern went on extended leave, financially able to with the five months of work he just completed, plus a bonus. The next several months proved to be their own variation of hell, though. Vern nearly encountered two additional panic attacks, but with his newfound knowledge was able to mitigate them. One was in a grocery store, and another while at home contemplating the depth of that intuition to part with Mia all over again. Vern attempted some yard work around the house, but always found himself hitting exhaustion terrifyingly quick. His ability to take deep breaths was essentially non-existent. Vern felt his life was going nowhere as another month had now elapsed. Vern had hit complete stagnation in his life, not knowing what to do, feeling as if his life was going nowhere, suffering from what appeared to be random physiological interruptions of daily living. At a loss, Vern wondered if his smoking, mixed with his living in some of the world's worst known places for air pollution, had finally caught up with him and Vern wondered if he now had lung cancer. Nonetheless, the one thing which motivated him was his dreams. He was still actively dreaming. They were so wild, though, so vivid. Jessamine would help describe the symbolic value of what Vern was seeing in his nightly images, but the answer to the larger picture is not always so easily seen. Dreams of the feminine erupted again for Vern, he was dreaming of so many different variations of women, lustful seductresses coming to him, women multiplying before his eyes, female animals running around, and then a certain particular dream stayed with Vern. Vern recorded in his dream journal, I was walking down the street in front of my house with a fish in hand that I just recently caught, a woman with beautiful red flowing hair wearing a short shirt displaying she was not wearing a bra, was riding a bike towards me. She stopped just in front of me and smiled big.
She was an artistic, hippie-like woman, just like the women I find myself attracted to. The woman unbuttoned her shorts in front of me and then pulled them low, revealing she had no underwear on either. She then exposed herself to me. She smiled, pulled her shorts back up, and invited me into a nearby house. I entered and said, I just caught this silver fish if you would like me to cook it for you. The red-headed woman nodded and smiled. I walked into the kitchen and next thing I knew, I was standing there as an old man wearing a nicely fit gray suit with finely combed hair. I, now the older man, walked out with a silver platter of fish to present to the woman. I looked to her, but all of a sudden, she transfigured into a tall old woman wearing glasses. The woman stared at me and she said the words, this only works if you're all in. Vern, lured by the seductress side of the anima, awoke and questioned the words of the now transfigured woman of his dreams into the archetype of the old wise woman speaking the words from his inner world. This only works if you're all in. Vernon his thoughts. All in for what? The path? The spiritual and psychological work? Is this about Mia? Vern was confused, but he would come to learn that he was on to something. And Vern seemed to innately know from this dream, one's feet cannot be halfway in and halfway out while walking the great path. Vern soon had another dream, wherein all he heard was a voice with no imagery. I heard someone say the words to me. Mia is having an affair. Vern awoke and said to himself, Okay, let's not get carried away with this. Dreams work in a symbolic fashion. What does Mia cheating on me symbolize? Vern could come to no resolution. This was odd to Vern, especially considering Mia was now back in Florida with him. The two were always together, always on his boat watching sunsets. Vern had now opened enough to her that she always gave him space to search, meditate, and read throughout the days and nights as he wished. Vern still encountered anxiety, but a couple whiskeys in and Vern could have a functioning relationship in public with Mia. Vern was not proud of this, as he felt he was numbing off something which was beckoning to be heard. Vern told himself he would not go past three drinks, which he simply used for the days on the beach or on the boat fishing, and watching sunsets. Vern began to dream extensively of Mia now, but during one evening of dreams, he saw a new image. I was lying in the grass and a young boy, who slightly resembled myself in my youth, was lying across my chest. He was sobbing in tears and pain. An image of the archetypal child within. We all have one. This divine child, often called the eternal child or inner child, is the child within each of us. It appears within our dreams frequently. This child is the part of us that is psychologically the one who needs care and love, nourishment and compassion. Yet also the child within dreams represents a new life, a new potential to be lived. This child is ever present in our lives, whether we acknowledge this or not. And this dream was telling Vern all too clearly his inner child was suffering. For the next six months, with Mia coming in and out of Florida for a few days at a time once per month, the darkness of anxiety, stagnation, chest pain, shallow breath, and neurotic behavior 
was all Vern experienced in life. Vern often recorded 8 to 11 dreams per night during this period. He woke each morning and transcribed the material to a Microsoft Word document on his computer, beginning to truly understand the imagery of his dreams. Vern had a dream during this period that brought him back to the beginning of his neurotic behavior. Vern dreamt and recorded. I dreamt a zombie apocalypse had broken out. I then traversed a town and met with an older man. This man then hired me as an investigator to identify the origin of how the zombies came to be. He told me the location of the house where the very first zombie was identified and was still located. It was inside of an old house of mine. The zombies in this dream were a symbolic display of Vern's symptoms. This is not a universal meaning, as dream images are signature to each dreamer, but for Vern, this was a manifestation. The unconscious is attempting to show Vern there are zombies present within his inner world, and the zombies, well, to Vern in his present-day situation, are the infected, just as Vern had been infected with anxiety and additional symptoms. His neurotic behavior had overcome and infiltrated him like a rapid infection at the onset of the dreaded zombie apocalypse. The older man in this dream image is an inner guide showing Vern the way to the solution of his problem. In a World War Z movie-like quality, the guide hires Vern as an investigator, also Vern's previous profession, and tells him to return to the origin of when and where the infection, that is the anxiety and neurotic behavior, began. And this was located in an old house of his. And this old house of Vern still had that zombie lingering in it from when the anxiety onset in Afghanistan. Houses and dreams often represent one's inner world of psychological operation. The house within dreams represents the totality of how one is and moves through life. In short, houses within dreams can be thought of as one's inner psychological house. This dream of the zombies hit Vern deep. He awoke this day and retrieved all his previous notebooks of recorded dreams and journaling in Afghanistan. His day was full of daily life tasks he had to tend to, and no time presented itself to allow for this. However, it would not be left unmet. Dreams do not simply dissipate, even from years ago, they await our attention. Vern fell asleep this night and proceeded to dream of Mia. Vern recorded. Mia was walking away from me and then took a seat in a chair with her back towards me. I pulled out a bow and arrow. I notched the arrow, drew the bow, aimed in, and released. The arrow flew with precision and penetrated Mia's back, entering the center of her heart. Vern awoke in the middle of the night and moved into a contemplative state, even as Mia lay in bed next to him. Vern speculated. Perhaps he was Cupid in this dream, and she was his one true love. However, as dreams are often quite ambiguous, Vern contemplated the counterside to this dream, that he was to pierce Mia's heart perfectly, ending the relationship, just as his intuition told him so many months before. Vern innately knew the right answer, but just for validation in regard to Vern's reservation, another synchronicity was sent forth 
shortly thereafter. In a book Fern was reading, the author spoke of how the heroes and myths must pierce and annihilate their own weakness, which the previous dream suddenly came flooding to Vern's consciousness as he read it. Vern had tears coming down as he thought of ending the relationship with Mia once again, though he still didn't understand why. He cringed at the idea of hurting her twice, but he could not ignore the dream in conjunction with what he had just read. Vern began to see his denial that it could be Mia. However, Vern was determined for truth. Vern grabbed his dream journal from overseas, which was at the ready. In this notebook, Vern had also recorded the initial intuition to break up with Mia, as well as the subsequent synchronicity. He knew he had to return to his intuition he had almost forgotten about. He went outside and lit a cigarette and began to search with veracity. As Vern flipped through page after page, he came across the page in his notebook labeled The Synchronicity. He began to read of that moment in Afghanistan. Vern leaned back and saw the words in his notebook. The truth is worth it. As he sat on his side porch reading the conclusion of that sentence, a June beetle of Florida, of the Scarab Beetle family, flew and landed on Vern's notebook, directly on the synchronicity page. Vern was stunned, but kept his hand on the notebook, and then the beetle soon crawled onto Vern's trigger finger. Vern slowly retracted, pulled his hand close, and stared at the beetle. Vern saw the gold reflecting off the beetle. He saw the greens reflecting with the light from the proper angle. The beetle then crawled further onto his hand, and as Vern sat there with the mind blown to pieces, he watched the beetle ever so beautifully fly off. Vern mumbled to himself, It's 4.30pm. These are night-dwelling beetles. I never see them until 7pm. Dr. Young's whole synchronicity research stemmed from that moment with his patient wherein the scarab beetle presented itself. You're truly trying to show me something, aren't you? This cannot be by chance. This night, another beetle was not seen for well over two hours, upon which dozens emerged in the evening, circling the lamppost in Vern's front yard. Two more synchronicities presented themselves this day for Vern. He was given a second chance on trusting his intuition once again. Vern did not understand why it was Mia. He wanted to deny it all over again and avoid hurting her twice. But Vern now knew the answer. Their relationship must end. At the conclusion of that thought, the previous dream image of the old wise woman came flooding to Vern's conscious mind, seemingly out of nowhere, as if it were preconceived by something within himself. This only works if you're all in. When one does the work required, the synchronicities reemerge. Mia was due to return to school in just a few days. Vern would do it prior to that. Vern kept telling himself during the remaining days, just do it. But he couldn't muster the strength. The day finally came, two hours into the morning. Vern walked outside and nearly had a panic attack in his own backyard. He was able to talk himself through the onsetting moments and prevent it. He calmed down as Mia was inside packing her bag. Go do it, Vern. There's something here, you know it to be true. Something is off with Mia. Vern walked into his house with the pain deep in his heart at the thought of hurting Mia again. 
Vern, through all the pain and hurt, walked into the bedroom and said, I can't do this anymore. Mia yelled, What? There's something pulling me away from you. I can't explain it. I don't know why, but I know I have to trust it, Mia. Again, Vern, you've got to be kidding me. Why? Tell me why. I don't know, Mia. I wish I did. I'm so sorry. Mia yelled and yelled at Vern. Vern had never seen this side of Mia, and it crushed him more to see how he was hurting her. I have to trust this, Mia. Even if I am dead wrong about this, I can at least look back and tell myself I went all in. I trusted in the signs which I have told you about. The feelings. The intuitions. I can say I trusted in life. I know I sound crazy sometimes, and hell, maybe I am. But I have to trust this. Mia came back sternly and said, Even if that means losing me in your life, losing me forever, you're okay with that? Vern's head hung low. In a moment he lapsed before Vern cleared his voice and said, I have to try. Don't do this, Vern. You can walk your spiritual path and be with me too. You don't have to do this. You've always said, there's an inner world and an outer world. Be with your inner world and be with me. Please, Vern. Vern stumbled over his words as tears now ran down his cheek. I can't have one foot in and one foot out. I have to be all in for whatever reason, Mia. Mia stormed out of the room in tears and finished packing. Vern stepped outside and lit a cigarette with his head still hung low. A tear tripped onto his cigarette as he attempted to process what just happened. I'm so sorry, Mia. God, I just don't understand, but I'm trying to trust. Vern walked back in and sat on the couch. Mia came back out almost 15 minutes later with a new demeanor. You're not crazy, Vern. I mean, I don't get it, but I know you're not crazy. Thank you, Mia. The two sat in silence for some time on the couch, with their legs touching. Fern reached over and squeezed her thigh. Mia's head tilted onto Vern's shoulder as she began to sob. Vern's head lowered on top of hers, and they sat there embracing one another for 20 minutes before Mia asked, So this is it? It is. I'm so sorry. I wish I could somehow explain this more, but I've shown you so much, even including my intuition to break up with you, Mia. I wish I knew why it existed. I'm going to miss you, sweet boy. I'm going to miss you, sweet girl. Will you still drive me to the airport? Vern laughed as he wiped a tear away. Of course I will. They arrived at the airport after listening to too many songs, which would forever have a new meaning. Vern could hardly endure what was happening, and before they exited the vehicle, they once again cried in each other's arms. Vern walked her in, kissed her deeply, and watched her walk away as tears streamed down in front of everyone. How beautiful it is to embrace this human experience. It's rich, it's wild, it's crazy sometimes, it's light, it's dark. But that is being human, is to experience all of this. So as I talked about the archetype of the shadow and that darker nature, let's look at the other archetypes of the anima and animus that I've been referring to lately within Vern's journey. 
Let me mention real quick that I didn't bring up before is that the archetype of the shadow, when it appears within dreams, it will always appear as the same sex as the dreamer. If a man dreams of this dark masculine figure, that's a shadow personification within dreams. Whereas if a woman dreams of, say, her best female friend or her sister about her age, that's a very common appearance of the shadow to a woman. But the anima and the animus are the opposite. They are the opposite within us from what our biological sex is. So let's start with the anima. The anima is the feminine energy that lives within man. It is his opposite as he is in life. Whereas the animus is woman's inner masculinity. It's the opposite of how she is naturally in life. Now maybe you've heard the stories of Shiva and Shakti, the ancient spiritual deities. These are not actual people that lived back in the day. These are once again, these stories to communicate these energies to us. So Shakti, Shakti is that feminine energy. It's that wild, untamed, spontaneous, playful, even sometimes a little chaotic. Think about mother nature with the storms and the wildfire, but it's also playful and gentle and kind and loving. That is that feminine energy that lives among life. Whereas Shiva is the opposite. This is that masculine energy of logic, of reasoning, of discipline, of perseverance, of ambition, of proper judgment, of intellect. This is that masculine energy of life. So when I mention masculine and feminine here, it has nothing to do with male and female, but rather these masculine and feminine energies live within each of us, both man and woman. The anima and the animus, these archetypes come to show us somewhat of what we need to integrate back into our life to make us whole. This is the journey of coming to wholeness, to being what we are capable of attaining to be. And these archetypes, they appear within our dreams frequently. So when a man dreams of a woman, this is usually some type of personification of the anima archetype, his own inner femininity attempting to communicate something to him. Whereas when a woman dreams of a man, it's typically a animus personification that this inner masculinity that she harnesses is trying to communicate something to her to integrate into her life or to become conscious of within her life. This life is wild, <laughs> it's deep, it's rich, it's beautiful. And once again, it's mysterious like this. So some of the common personifications of the anima to men within dreams is the fairies, is the sea nymphs, is the mermaids. It was Tinker Bell to Peter Pan. That's what that whole aspect of the story is. It was Blanche Fleur, the woman that Parsifal met in the Grail Myth. It's displaying the inner feminine companion that lives within man. And for woman, it's usually some type of personification of a hero or of a god or a demigod. Maybe you saw the movie Moana, when she takes her journey with Maui, the demigod. <laughs> Disney movies are great about showing the inner world. So Maui went on to help Moana on her journey to becoming whole, to becoming the woman that she was. 
It's that inner opposite companion that lives within us. And this is heavy stuff. I get that. But within depth psychology, these are also known as soul images. We see these anima or animus appearances within our dreams. The soul always appears as this contrasexual image. Once again, think of Shiva and Shakti coming together, merging as one. The Yabyum image of the East, of the man and woman coming together. We like to externalize and literalize everything in our day and age, but we have to see the inner symbolic value that these ancient symbols hold. Think about Adam and Eve. They were never really two. <laughs> That's part of the goal in life and the path of individuation of coming to the wholeness that we are meant to be in this life. It's just like the shadow earlier is reintegrating our dark side, understanding the darkness of life. But with the anima and animus, it's integrating that opposite that lives within us. It's merging those feminine and masculine energies, giving them life. And that is through our freedom of expression, the way in which we live. And so it's normal for a man to move in this very masculine element in life, to uphold that standard in society of what a man is supposed to appear as. But just as a man can be ambitious and disciplined, so too can he be kind and loving and patient. And just as a woman is innately nurturing, just like that motherly aspect, that loving, that playfulness, that kindness, so too can she have perseverance and aggression at the proper time and courage and bravery. <laughs> To integrate these archetypes, to become aware of them in our life, is part of the great work of coming to a higher state of consciousness. These archetypes and working with them in the way we see them within our dreams, they help us to become whole, to become who we are supposed to be, who we are meant to be, who we are born to be in this life. Well, once again, thank you for listening. This is Paradigm Run. I've been your host, Mark Barrios. As always, more to come.